Amen. Uh, There is a rite of passage for every 15-year-old child in the United States of America. These aspiring young men and women are allowed the precious gift of a driver's learning permit. It's a terrifying and exhilarating experience for a family. Uh, I do not have teenagers yet, by God's grace, uh, but I have taught teenagers to drive. I remember getting uh, one girl behind the wheel of the car, and she looked at me, and she said, Now, which one's the brake again? (laughs) Why don't you get out of the driver's seat for a few minutes? Let me teach you a little bit. Um, One of the most important, uh, and yet often rarely taught pieces of knowledge when learning how to drive a car is car maintenance. How do I take, take care of these cars that I own? Every new driver needs to understand the importance of regularly changing the oil in their car. Oil is the lifeblood of an engine. The oil lubricates and the engine maximizing its efficiency, allowing the car to run smoothly. I know there are some of you out there who have gone a long time without changing your oil. And if the oil is not changed regularly, the engine will eventually shut down. Of course, the car will work for a while before any problems are seen, but slowly different things will start to pop up. Fuel costs will start to increase as the engine's working harder. Uh, There'll begin to be odd noises, and the car will become a little sluggish. Eventually, if one does not abide in the knowledge of regular oil changes, the engine will die. It's only a matter of time. As an oil is to an engine... The abiding knowledge of God is essential for our spiritual vitality. We may be able to run a long, run for a, a while uh, without abiding with God, but eventually our spiritual engine will shut down. We must abide in the knowledge of God. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ provides essential knowledge that we must choose to live our lives by. If we do not abide in the knowledge of the resurrection, we will eventually shut down. There may be little pockets that start here and there, but eventually your lives will fall apart. Amos 4.6 says, My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. The Apostle John wrote this epistle to the church to exhort them to abide in the knowledge of Christ. Almost half the uses of the word abide or remain, stay with, Continue. Only almost half the uses of the entire New Testament are in these five chapters. John encourages people to remain, to stay with the gospel. To to remain or abide is not some mystical idea, but to abide in the knowledge is important as oil changes as a Christian. To a Christian should abide in the knowledge of the resurrection of Christ. There are five aspects that I see as I've been working through this book that John encourages the church to abide in through this epistle. The first is abide in the knowledge that the resurrection shows eternal light. The resurrection shows eternal light. One of the key themes throughout this book is light and darkness. The resurrection of Jesus Christ shows that he is the divine light, that he is the light of the world. That's really what Jesus says during his earthly ministry. In John chapter 8, verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. See, God manifested or showed himself through the person of Jesus Christ. John, 1 John 1, 5, 
This is the message we have heard and proclaimed to you that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. John 1.7 But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' his Son cleanses us from all sin. And in the second chapter, verse 7, At the same time, a new commandment I give to you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The life, burial, and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ shows us that Jesus Christ is the eternal light of the world. You cannot know God outside of Jesus Christ. Jesus being the light of the world is our clear example to follow. If you are ever confused on how you are called to live, all you must do is look to Christ. How much confusion would be avoided in our world if we simply looked to Jesus? Simply look on to Christ. Without light, we cannot know where to go. I'm not sure if you've ever had that experience. I kind of had it this morning when you wake up really early and your family's still sleeping and you don't want to wake anybody else up. And because you don't want to wake anybody else up, you don't want to turn the lights on. You ever had that experience? And you try to get, get around the room and try to get your, get your things together. That may work once or twice, but if you keep the lights off, guess what's going to happen? You're going to hit something. You're going to stub your toe and you're going to wake up everybody in the house, right? We need light. We cannot properly function without light. And God knew that. That's why he sent his son to be the light of the world. Jesus' light shows us how to live. But it does not merely show us how to live, but how to live eternally. 1 John 5, 12 says Jesus is the true God and eternal life. So he's our, he's the light, he's our example. The second thing, the knowledge that we abide in is that, that Jesus, through his resurrection, supplies eternal life. He, he gives it to us. We abide in the knowledge that God sent his son to supply us with eternity. Jesus was sent to save us. Hear these verses. 1 John 2.1 My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. One of my favorite verses of Scripture. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not ours only, but the sins of the whole world. And again, in 1 John 4.10, same principle. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And later in 1 John 4.13, we have seen and testified that the Father sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Friends, we are sinners, and we have no claim on eternal life. Our sin has separated us from God. And our sin deserves to be punished, and must be punished if God is just. The Bible says all human beings are under the wrath of God, meaning the anger and the, the wrath of God is, is set against all humans in their sin. And yet, this, this father who is full of wrath sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That is a huge word that is never used in our, our vocabulary. It's a Bible word. It's used four times in, in the New Testament. It comes from the Greek word halasmos, where we get our word hilarious. Uh, propitiation means an atoning sacrifice or an act of appeasement to God. God's anger is appeased or satisfied or placated. God's anger no longer rests on us, but because it was taken on by Christ. Christ took the wrath of God. God Christ took the anger of God. So it was 
in the propitiation, what that means is that because Christ took on the wrath of God, we get the blessings of God. The act of propitiation changes God from viewing us as an enemy, from viewing us as a child, as one of his precious children. The Son is the Savior of sinners by being numbered as a sinner, so that we might be saved. This is glorious, right? Think about how different our lives would be if we understood that this is what Christ has done for us. In World War II, Ernest Gordon was a British captive in in a Japanese prison camp in the River Kwai in Burma, uh, where the POWs, they were were forced to build a uh, a railroad of death transporting Japanese troops to, to the battlefront. They were tortured, they were starved, and they worked to the point of exhaustion. 16,000 died in this prison camp. Gordon survived these horrors. And this, on one occasion, at the end of the work, he shares this story. He says the tools were being counted before the prisoners returned to their quarters. A guard declared that one shovel was missing. He began to rant and rave, demanding to know which prisoner had stolen it. This guard was full of anger and wrath. Working himself to a paranoid fury, he ordered whoever was guilty to step forward and take the punishment. No one did. All die, the guard shrieked. All die. He cocked his rifle and aimed it at the prisoners. At that moment, one man stepped forward. Standing at attention, he calmly declared, I did it. The Japanese guard at once clubbed the man to death. As his friends carried away his lifeless body, the shovels in the tool shed were recounted, only to reveal that there was no shovel missing. This man stepped forward to appease, to be the propitiation of this guard's anger. The soldier became the propitiation that moved the, 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 the satisfied, the anger of the guard and took it away from the other men so that they could go free. See, the reason that we have hope this morning is because there was a death sentence against us. The sentence was clear. All die. And unlike the guard, who had no basis for his anger, God has a very real basis for his anger against us because of our rebellion against him. God still chose to send his son as our advocate and say, I did it. That's what the cross means. Jesus was numbered as one who committed the wrath, who committed sin. He took the place of those who deserved to die. Jesus Christ stepped forward, gave his life to satisfy God's wrath and to save us. God supplied, gave us eternal life through the Son. And now the Father has sent us into the world with that same message. John 20, 21 says, Peace be with you. Praise God, someone said it to me today. Uh, we were thinking about Easter and they just said, Peace be with you. I love those last words of, of Jesus to his disciples. Peace be with you, he says. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. We abide in the knowledge of the resurrection when we go and share the resurrection with others. If you never share Jesus, How can you say you have fellowship with him? Read this book again and learn how many times it says, Proclaim, share, tell. 
Even at the beginning of this book, it says, That which we have heard, seen, and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us. When was the last time you proclaimed eternal life so that others may have fellowship with us? So that, so that God in Christ would cleanse them of their sin. Oh, beloved, if the tomb is really empty, why don't we share the good news of the gospel of Christ? Abide in that knowledge. The third thing we see here is we want to abide in the knowledge that the resurrection secures eternal life. Not only was it supplied in the sacrifice of Christ, it was also secured for us. Jesus' resurrection is the promise of our future resurrection. Romans 8.29 says that Jesus was the firstborn among many brothers. Jesus secured our eternal life in and through his resurrection from the dead. Paul writes his great letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says this in verse 20. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was the first resurrection. That means there's going to be others who come after him. He was the firstfruits. We get to share in that resurrection. The whole goal of First John is so that, so that we would know that we have eternal life. And the only way that we can have eternal life is that we have a resurrection from the dead. Listen to what he says in 1 John uh, 5, verse 11. This is the testimony. God gave us eternal life. That life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. But he who does not have the Son does not have life. But he says, I am writing these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so you may know that you have eternal life. That is all grounded in the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection proved, declared Jesus to be the Son of God. His resurrection is now proof that we will have life. What a sweet and sure hope for God's people. Do you ever doubt that you're saved? Do you ever wonder if God's resurrection power is applied to you? Beloved, you're not alone. I think one of the reasons John wrote this book is because there was people in the early church who doubted they were Christians. They doubted that they had the resurrection. So, so he, he has this great section in, in, his, in his second chapter, chapter 2, 12 through 14. He says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Then he says, I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I, I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I'm writing to you, children, because you know the Father. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who was from the beginning. When he says, I, I'm writing to you young men. Young men often doubt. Young people often doubt if they're in the Lord. He says, you are strong. And the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. There's so many places in this short letter that are meant to encourage those saints who are, who are doubting whether they are in, in the victory of Christ. We want to abide in the knowledge of our victory, our sure victory of Christ. Listen to these passages of Scripture. I'll read them fast. 
1 John 2.20, But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. 1 John 2.24 and 25, If you have heard what you, if you have, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us, eternal life. 1 John 4.4, 4, Little children, you are from God, and you are overcome then, because He who is in you is greater than He who is in the world. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding. And that we know him who is true. And we know that we are in him who is true. His Son, Jesus Christ, the true God and eternal life. Do not let condemnation govern your life. You have the sure hope of the resurrection of Christ. There is now no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. We live in the sure hope of the resurrection from the dead. The fourth thing we see here that we want to abide in, we want to abide in the knowledge that the resurrection supplies eternal living. Right? Not that we, we are secure in our eternal life, but it should change us to live differently. The people of God should always look different than the world. We show our faith through our deeds. As John Calvin has said, it is therefore faith alone which justifies. And we say amen and amen. And yet, the faith which justifies is, ne- is not alone. Christians have always been marked by righteousness. So 1 John 2.6, whoever says they abide in Christ ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. He is our example and our teacher. We should desire to live our life like him. And usually, when I start talking about how we should live our life like Jesus, the first things out of our mouth is, well, we can't be like Jesus, because he's God. Okay, yes, he's God, but you're actually commanded to be like Jesus. That is not an excuse in God's eyes, because he has given you his Holy Spirit to take your dead heart and make it alive in him and empowers you to live for his glory. Our lives are a clear sign that we belong to God. John speaks of believers walking in the light as Jesus is in the light. He speaks of believers practicing righteousness as he is righteous. We are like him in in where we walk and how we live. After my wife uh, became a believer, we were living in Washington, D.C., the first passage of scripture I asked her to memorize was uh, 1 John 2, 15-17. In 2003, it was a very important passage, I think, in the life of the church. And I think, you know, 13 years later, it's even more important. Hear what God's word says. 1 John 2, 15-17. Do not love the world or the things in this world. For anyone who loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is a piercing passage of Scripture. But it provides this powerful perspective. The church of the living God should not look like the world. We should reflect the love of the Father. And sadly, more and more churches are desiring to become like the world to reach the world. Friends, we are, we are called to reach the world through our good works and God's good word. Let us never try to win the world through worldly means, for the world is temporary. But he who does the will of God abides forever. 
As the letter goes on, John almost increases the weight of his exhortation. Now remember, he's writing this letter to a, to a real group of people who are struggling with sin and how to, how to love their wives, how, how to be good, good children, how, how to be good co-workers. These are, these are real people living real lives. And this is what he says. This, this, this crescendo of, of how we're called to live in 1 John 3, 4 through 10. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now I want you to notice two things there. We can often focus on the negative, but there's also words of encouragement to the saints, as well as warning for those who are not living up to their faith. The one who practices righteousness, the right living, should have confidence that they belong to God. The one who makes a practice of sinning should have no confidence before God. They should have no security that they have eternal life. The one who's been born again lives in righteousness. This does not mean that the righteous will never fail to fall to sin. Because even as we heard earlier, we are all sinners. And, and we, but that's why we got to an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We do not rest in our righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ. That's where we rest in. And yet our lives should be more and more like Jesus and not less like him. 1 John 2, 28. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, you may have confidence and not shrink back in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. I don't know what you have come in this Easter Sunday morning with. But I promise, I, I, I want to encourage you to come to the light. One of our dear saints here told me this week that 50 years ago on Easter Sunday, she turned from her sins and she trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as her Savior 50 years ago. And I can promise you, she has not regretted one day, one minute since that happened. She drew a line in the sand 50 years ago and says, I'm choosing to follow and live for Jesus. Who knows? Maybe some of you here will think back 50 years from today and say, this was the Sunday that changed my life forever. Friend, do not be deceived. Followers of Christ will look like Christ. Come to the light. If you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He doesn't say get it together first. He says come to Him and He will make you clean. Come to the light. Do not stay in the darkness. Everyone who trusts in Jesus purifies himself as Jesus is pure. Allow Jesus to cleanse you from all your sin. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. He came to satisfy God's wrath and to fill your need. Oh friend, come to the light. And beloved, 
Can I just make a word of encouragement? If you are striving to live in righteousness, take comfort. God is pleased with you. So often I see believers just think that God could never be pleased with them. There are always ways that we can live better. But we should not always live feeling like we can do nothing right. God is pleased when he keeps his commandments. God is pleased when we live to please him. This side of heaven, our good deeds will never be perfect. But that does not mean that God is not pleased with the good deeds that we offer in his name. God delights in you. You are his treasured possession. Rejoice in that. Take heart. You are God's children. You belong to him and he loves you. Well, lastly, we want to abide in the knowledge that the resurrection shapes eternal love. It shapes how we live among each other. When we are born of God, we will love with eternal love. We will not love each other like the world loves, but we will love with a supernatural love. Our our love should no longer be marked by self-interest and self-glorification, but actually be marked by self-sacrifice. There is no book in the New Testament that focuses so much on loving the family of God than this book. It is a powerful reminder of what God has done for us in Christ. Jesus died on the cross, was buried, was raised from the dead, seated at the right hand of the Father, sent His Spirit so that we could live through Him. And we primarily show how we live through Him and how we treat each other. When we love the brothers and sisters in faith, we are manifesting His love to the world. Hear these exhortations just several of them in, in 1 John. 2.10 Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. 3.11 For this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. 3.14 We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. 3.16 By this we know love, that we lay down his life for us. We ought to love, lay down our lives for the brothers. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he commanded us. The sheer volume when you read it is just overwhelming of how we're called to love each other. That the best paragraph is 1 John 4, 7-12 that says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Hear these great verses. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we love God, but He loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And then he almost stops. And he makes you think of what Christ has done for you, taking his, the wrath of God on your behalf. And he says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to also love one another. God, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. His love is perfected in us. The love of a Christian is the badge that we are believers. It's what we wear. It identifies us as saints. Hate is the marker of the world. John warns of the hate towards the brothers almost as much as his book encourages love. One of the clearest warnings he makes is referring to those who leave the fellowship of the saints as those who are anti-Christ. Think about this. We we, we often think the worst thing you could ever say to someone is that you are an anti-Christ. That person is the Antichrist. You know what John does? John says that if you walk away from the church, if you walk away from the body of believers, you are an Antichrist. Listen to what he says. 
First John 2.18. Children, it is the last hour. As you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, they being the Antichrist. But they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. It's almost, it would have been shocking for John, for someone to say they had fellowship with Jesus without gathering with the saints. The communion with the saints was a mark that we have communion with God. Praise God for this church. Praise God how often I have witnessed you love each other well. How you sacrifice your time and your family with your family to to, to minister and, and serve the sick. How you open up your homes for for fellowship around the table, for studying the Word of God. How you wake up early and stay up late together to study the Bible. How encouraging it was today when I, when I, as I said at breakfast, when I looked over there at 6 o'clock in the morning and I see a bunch of teenagers holding hands and praying for today that people would know and love Christ. How you tirelessly pray for each other. How you check up on each other when we're not here. How you love to spend time after the service and just talking and fellowshipping among the saints. And how often I hear of your love for each other throughout the week. I pray that the love we have for each other would just be magnified more and more. And I pray that, that you would continue to be steadfast in your love for one another. Beloved, abiding in the knowledge of the resurrection is essential for our spiritual lives. We don't want to break down. We don't want to shut down. We do this by beholding and marveling at the beauty of the gospel of the glorious resurrection of the Savior. It's not something we do once a year, but every single day. The the, the more we grow closer to Christ, the more we see his beauty, his goodness. John Flavel writes this quote, I end here of how abiding in Christ magnifies his beauty. This is what he says. When the saints shall have fed their eyes upon Christ in heaven, thousands and millions of years, he shall be as fresh and beautiful and oriented as in the beginning. Other beauties have their prime and their fading time, but Christ abides eternally. Our delighting creatures is often most at first acquaintance, but when we come nearer to them, we, we see more of them. The edge of our delight is abated. But the longer you know Christ, the nearer you come to him, still the more do you see of his glory. Every farther prospect of Christ entertains the mind with fresh delight. He is, as it were, a new Christ every day, and yet the same Christ still. Beloved, we never outgrow our need for Christ. But his beauty only widens and deepens in time. Let us abide with him because he is our light, our love, the true God, our eternal life, our propitiation, and the Savior of the world. Behold the many angles of our risen Christ. And feast, oh, and feast on his majesty. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us feast on the majesty of Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.